This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now for several months, perhaps as long ago as a year, there have been difficult moments where racism has reared its very ugly head about the number of people who we have in this country who have migrated here. And more recently, there have been ugly scenes in the suburbs around the country also In fact, last Saturday in Dublin, there was a very large march against racism saying effectively that all were welcome in Ireland. But the rise of that right-wing stuff, anti-immigrant, racist, and thoroughly bigoted has been, is a concern for many people. And it's a pleasure now to welcome to the stand Professor Dermot Ferreter. Dermot is Professor of Irish, Modern Irish History at UCD. And Dermot, I want to ask you this. I, I've always, you know, replied when contrasting Ireland with, say, England, where I lived, and other parts of Europe, in my own speciality subject of sport, there's the most vicious racism now all over Europe. Some of it is absolutely unbelievable, but it's there in England as well, as we see frequently terrible stuff that you would not see generally in Ireland. However, there have been rumblings. There are so many immigrants here now. And I wanted to ask you about the right, the far right, and the bigots in Irish society. And I had a look at the blue shirts, Ono Duffy, for example, who at least associated with fascists and probably was a fascist. Are we different from others in Europe and the British in terms of racism and bigotry? Or are we just, or have we just been fortunate so far? There are a number of different ways you could look at that. You mentioned Owen O'Duffy there. O'Duffy was a fascist. O'Duffy was attracted by what was going on in Europe in the 1930s. And there was a lot of questioning during that decade, about the value of democracy yes. and representative institutions. It was a wider European crisis, really. And we all know, of course, uh, how it culminated uh, in such a horrible way. But he was very attracted to the trappings of fascism. And what developed in Ireland with, with the blue shirts was the embracing uh, of partly the cult of personality around O'Duffy, uh, who was a mass of contradictions because his, his private life was completely at odds with the way in which he preached the gospel of national virility 
he was an alcoholic, chain-smoking uh, fascist who, who talked about uh, the need for clean living and, and a disciplined um, army of people who, who would be pure in their aims and pure in their behavior. So, you know, he, he, he was a mass... He extolled the virtues of sport. He did very context. much, yeah, yes. and he saw that as a way to discipline people, but also uh, modelling, I suppose, uh, some of his his rhetoric um, on what was going on in in Italy and Germany in relation to the the purity of younger people and needing to get them into sporting organisations and needing needing to have them uh, conform uh, and salute um, and you know to of course be involved in in a program of national purity which is about bringing out the best in them and there's a hostility inherent in that to those who aren't deemed yes. to be part of that so there there are elements of that what it wasn't about of course was people coming into Ireland from elsewhere and this is where Ireland is very very interesting and you mentioned there your experiences of of England and Britain yes uh, Britain was dealing obviously with a wave of decolonization Yes. Uh, particularly in the post-Second World War period, in the 50s, 60s and onwards. Um, and, you know, you had a lot of, of people from former colonies coming uh, to Britain, and that generated uh, difficulties. It generated great opportunities as well, of course. Um, but Ireland did not experience that. What we're talking about here, Eamon, is very, very new. Now, when you consider the very small number of people who came uh, to Ireland, particularly in the 20th century, people... Uh, might have heard of the Hungarian refugee crisis yes. arising out of what was going on in, in Hungary in 1956. There were 500 of them, roughly, uh, who came to Ireland, and they were badly treated. Um, th- they ended up in a former army camp uh, in Nocknalachine in Limerick. Uh, they eventually went on strike uh, because of the conditions in which they were being kept and their rights under the UN Convention uh, uh, for, for refugees were not being respected in relation to them being allowed to work. And they eventually ended up going off to Canada, most of them. It was kind right. of a non-word migration. And Ireland wasn't used to dealing with that. But Ireland, of course, was also very harsh and the Department of Justice was very harsh when it came to the Second World War and not admitting uh, Jewish refugees. It was a very yes. hard line taken uh, in relation to that. Um, and you also had, you know, at an even earlier stage, um, there was anti-Semitism, particularly in Limerick. You may have heard of the Limerick pogrom yes. uh, directed at the Jewish community uh, in 1904, uh, so, you know, there were incidents like that that suggested there was some kind of latent hostility to the idea uh, of outsiders coming into Ireland. But it's not until the 1990s that it is actually experienced in a way that other European countries were experiencing it because of Ireland's economic turnaround, because of the changes uh, in Europe, because of the patterns of migration. Um, and it was deemed to be extraordinary that by 2006 there were 420,000 non-nationals living in Ireland. And of course, that was going to grow and grow to the point where now it's uh, in the region of 14% of the population in the Republic today uh, are non-nationals. So that has been a huge transformation in in a relatively short space of time. So what we're talking about today in the context of the protests um, and the, the growing manipulation really of, of I suppose what is a, a media ecosystem now by those intent on on whipping up racism and, and organizing the the right in Ireland that's a relatively new development there isn't a long history of of the right or the far right in Ireland but you could argue of course that that was partly because there were so few non-natives here yes I mean the question of race in sport for example here, we have some 
black players in the national soccer team now, and it's I think it's fantastic. And the support for them in the Aviva is just amazing. I mean, the, the fans love the fact that we have these new Irish players now. What I call them new Irish, first-generation Irish, or yeah. whatever. The contrast between our appreciation and respect for black players and what goes on in England. And there's a terrible case in Spain at the moment. There's a young Brazilian called Vinicius. He's a brilliant player. He's playing for Real Madrid. And there are monkey chants every time he touches the ball. And the most appalling racism, which is constant, wherever he goes in Spain, it's really deeply shocking. And my own sort of superficial take, if you like, is that we don't have a racist newspaper. We don't have a racist political party, even though Owen Duffy was the first leader of Fine Gael, I understand. And we don't have the tolerance for it. And I cite as evidence for that, that March last Saturday, there were about 10,000 people on it. And they the banner said, everyone welcome. And yeah. sentiments such as that. It would be very, very hard to find that elsewhere in Europe now, yeah, but particularly yeah. the, in England, which I know very well. Yeah, We have not been regarded as fertile ground to build far-right movements or racist movements for, for obvious reasons, because there wasn't deemed to be uh, the potential there, partly because the numbers that you were talking about uh, were small, but also because Ireland didn't necessarily experience what was happening in, in other parts of Europe, particularly over the last 40 or 50 years, when you look at the the change in industrial society, you know, there was a time when you could locate a kind of a centre-left or a centre-right. Um, you know, they were well, very, very well defined in opposition. And then the nature of, of, of industry and employment and the movement of people changed. And that did facilitate uh, the rise of the right, um, built on the back of economic uh, grievances and the breakdown of perhaps traditional uh, class differentiations. Yes. Uh, and there's a real resentment towards the newcomer, towards the economic migrant. Uh, obviously, the breakdown of, of economic barriers uh, in, in, in Europe played a part in that. What Ireland had, I suppose, we didn't have those uh, clearly f- clearly defined uh, differences to the same extent as other parts of Europe. Uh, we weren't doing particularly well economically, so it wasn't a, an, an attractive uh, place. But you also have to broaden this out to consider that we have a very complex relationship with race and migration because of our own history. Yes. And I mean, the, the, the numbers are staggering. You know, in the last 300 years, between 9 and 10 million people have left this island. That's higher than the Irish population at its historic peak before the famine in the 1840s when it was just over 8 million. That's the scale of the exodus that you're dealing with. So we were defined and are defined as a people by migration due to our history. Now that led to a very complex mix because it didn't mean that the Irish were not capable of racism. They certainly were. Irish people were victims of empire, but they were also participants in empire as a result of this massive uh, exodus. And it's it's very interesting, for example, that Frederick Douglass, who was the best-known black abolitionist in the United States um, in the middle of the 19th century, he was an escaped slave himself. He came to Ireland between 1845 and 1846, and he recorded his experiences of Ireland, where he was very well-received 
And he said to the Irish people, I was not seen as a colour, I was seen as a man. Uh, And he shared platforms with Daniel O'Connell, who, of course, was the iconic nationalist leader at that time, who was very firm in his opposition to uh, slavery. Uh, He was also very vain because he introduced Frederick Douglass as as the the black O'Connell of the United States. (laughs) But he was making common cause with them. At the same time, there were other uh, Irish nationalists and and Republicans, like the Young Irelanders, who supported uh, slavery. And there yes. were, you know, those who had an economic interest in Ireland in slavery, including those operating out of Belfast, because it was a big business. When slavery was abolished in Britain in 1834, they had to compensate the slave owners. Uh, and it was an Irish man, James Blair from Newry, who received the biggest payout uh, because of the amount of slaves that he owned. So we were stitched into the, the, the fabric uh, of all that uh, yes. on that race question. But there was a sense that we could also make common cause because there were times in the 19th century, and I'm using the contemporary language, where the Irish were referred to as the white Negroes. Yes. You know, they we experienced our own racism in, in, in Britain, uh, but then the Irish in America, many of them turned against uh, the black population there. Uh, and Douglas was later, Douglas was later to record that, you know, despite what he had written about the warmth of the reception he received in 1845 and 1846, he then went on later to say that none were worse than the Catholic Irish when it came to racism and displacing uh, the native African Americans uh, yes. when, when it came to employment and so on. And the draft riots in New York in 1863, which were absolutely vicious, the context there was the American Civil War, the Irish were to the forefront in the lynching uh, of the black population. Yes. Um, and there were really, there were desperate things done then. So that's a part of our relationship uh, with race uh, over the centuries. And of course, there was, and people will remember too, the, the appeals that were being made even recently in the 1980s about famine in Africa and understanding the plight uh, of a people who were experiencing uh, starvation and e- economic discrimination. And there was a huge emotional response uh, uh, from Irish people on the grounds that they could identify as the people who had been affected by uh, famine and colonial exploitation. Uh, and you have that sense of, of empathy, um, but you also, of course, obviously have uh, a tradition uh, of Irish people being well capable of being involved in the excesses of exploitation and, and colonisation. And that, that's a very complex legacy. Yes, and I mean, the point you made there about the reputation Irish people had in America for being racist was something I was going to come to. Mm. And I suppose to talk about a country like Ireland having the the virtue of being, you know, broad-minded and welcoming and not being racist, to a, a large extent, anti-Semitism, all forms of bigotry and prejudice, racism, they're all defined or generated, if, we, if you like, by circumstances. Isn't that the fact of the matter? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you go back to the original anti-Semitism I was talking about there that was witnessed, say, in the early 20th century, that was about identifying Jewish people as treacherous, uh, as being involved in economic exploitation, you know, all these tropes and and, and stereotypes. Uh, Now, scholars would also maintain, though, that, you know, there were plenty of uh, uh, Jewish people who found a welcoming home in Ireland. Uh, Cormac O'Grada has, has, has written interestingly on the history um, of, of anti-Semitism in Ireland, and he maintains that it wasn't uh, widespread, so it's not that they couldn't find um, some solace uh, in Ireland. You can also, of course, make the point that, you know, in 2004, 
um, with the expansion of the EU that Ireland was prepared uh, to allow uh, its borders stay open uh, yes. when it came to migration. There did seem to be something of a distinction, of course, between uh, those who were coming from Europe and those who were coming from Africa. And, and, and that's another interesting uh, aspect of this. But they were also needed. And you're talking about circumstances. So much of this, of course, is grounded in economics. Yes. Um, and, you know, there were an awful lot of migrants, obviously, who were taking jobs uh, that needed to be filled, that Irish people didn't necessarily uh, want to fill. Uh, but we also have to remind ourselves of, of the asylum process. Um, and, you know, I mean, there are 37 direct provision uh, centres uh, in Ireland at the last count, yes. over 7,500 people in them. Many of, many of them have been there for years, and one third of them are children. Uh, and that's another aspect of, of, of what became complicated from the late 1990s onwards. How yes. do you manage this? You know, Foucault would have always made the point that, you know, the modern state cannot help but become racism in, in some form when it comes to the challenge of immigration uh, and how you deal um, with, you know, processing this as an issue and how you administrate it and so on. And we had our own citizenship referendum here in 2004, you might recall, yes. where the automatic birthright citizenship uh, was was taken away. And Ireland was unusual uh, in maintaining that. And again, there were some who argued that it was appropriate that we had that given uh, our own history. But it was also part of a new um, politics, a new language around this question of, of how you deal with the amount of people who wanted to come into Ireland. But there was also a lot of exaggeration. The word flood was often yes. used, for example, even though the statistics did not bear that out. And that's part of, of what we're talking about as well. How is this reported on? Um, yes. How is it discussed? There was a National Consultative Committee on Racism and Interculturalism that was established in 1998, but it was abolished in 2008 uh, as a result of cutbacks. Um, and, you know, the existence of that was a recognition that there needs to be discourse, there needs to be consultation. Uh, we can't assume that those who are expressing concerns about what is happening in their areas are all unthinking bigots and racists. Uh, historically, migrants have ended up in areas that are already yes. suffering from economic deprivation. And that's part of the situation at the moment, isn't it? It's, yeah, it's part and, of, it was, it's, and it was the same when Irish people went abroad. Yes. Um, you know, and even if you take that famine immigration and, and the, the racism that was exhibited um, towards Irish migrants, of course, they were competing with other poorer people. Um, and, you know, so economic factors and, and, and where, uh, where that integration process works or if that integration process works, you know, th th that is around circumstances as well. But it's also about leadership. There was, before the 2002 election, an anti-racism protocol that was yes. agreed by the main political parties, that this would not become uh, an issue or a political issue. And, you know, support for far-right parties, according to the 2020 general election results, is minuscule. Yes. Uh, you're talking about in the region of 1%. But what's interesting at the moment is that Ireland is now being identified as suitable territory or fertile ground for those who want to manipulate this question. And there yes. are those, obviously, who travel around and see opportunities uh, and work social media in order to implant particular ideas or particular language. Isn't it interesting, you referenced some of the recent protests in Dublin, that the word yes. plantation has been used. 
Right. Now, there's a deliberate and and quite grotesque misuse of Irish history. The idea that migrants are being planted to undermine traditional Irish identity and culture. This is a nativism that's built on the idea of a historical memory of how we were displaced. And to compare what's happening today (laughs) with the plantation uh, of, of, of Munster and of Ulster, three and a half million acres, a project of social engineering that was awesome uh, in its scale, is obviously profoundly ahistorical and and manipulative. But it just shows you how these rhythms work. You know, you begin to use a particular language or accusation and, and then it builds traction or builds momentum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The question of Fine Gael arises in my mind. I note, incidentally, that last week, a notorious British racist, a far-right character, Tommy Robinson, mm. is a vicious piece of work. He's a working-class North of England guy who's been ar- around this kind of stuff for a long time in Britain and is, is, is quite dangerous. He, he paid us a visit last week, yeah. and, which was actually one of the triggers for asking you to, to talk to me today. If we're getting a character like that, and if he's thinking this may be fertile territory, then we do have potentially at least a problem. But I wanted to ask you about, I mean, the Fine Gael is a very interesting example to me 
Arnold Duffy was the first, the founder, I suppose. And they have had people, you know, in their 50s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even who said pretty outrageous things in Dal Aaron on the record. And yet it has evolved now into being, you know, a million miles away from that, as far as I can see. And it's been eradicated. There isn't anyone I can think of in Fine Gael right now or any policy that they have put forward in the last 25, 30 years that I could think of as in any way bigoted, racist, or anything like that. So they have evolved out of it, haven't they? But I mean, you you mentioned there, Ronald Duffy, there was also sometimes reference Oliver Flanagan, uh, to Oliver Flanagan. I mean, Oliver Flanagan, again, was uh, an Irish manifestation of, of concern that was being expressed. Uh, this was the European, or sorry, the uh, Monetary Reform Party uh, in the 1940s. He actually came to uh, prominence on the back of that before he became integrated into Fine Gael. And again, you know, he, he made blatantly anti-Semitic uh, comments uh, on the record um, about you know Jewish conspiracy theories around money uh, and credit control. This is about credit control. It's very much a product of the 1930s and uh, the 1940s. Um, and there wasn't much um, political road in that particular argument. It was of its time and um, it certainly benefited him uh, in the Midlands around that time. But there was no... There was no long-term uh, uh, traction in it. So no. what you're talking about there, I suppose, is you know what potential had, had, was there at various stages for the you know the politics of racism or for playing on that. You know Ireland just remained um, a, a country that was not a favoured destination uh, for migrants. So there was nothing there uh, uh, to be built uh, out of uh, an anti-immigration uh, sentiment. Uh, until relatively recently. And as you have said, there has, of course, been a reluctance in mainstream politics. There have been isolated isolated incidents. You do get references, and there have been references at, at local level uh, to the idea of, you know, housing the Irish first policy um, yeah. and references to spongers uh, and, 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 you know, money that's being supposedly hoarded or sent back. You know, th- there have been a few incidents like that uh, particularly at local level, but they've generally been strongly condemned uh, yes. by political leaders. But that also um, means that we have to be conscious uh, of the integration challenge. I mean, it's all very well to talk about condemning those who are making incendiary or or, or inaccurate or, or indeed racist remarks, but are there active integration policies? Is there going to be a reactivation of, of you know, a consultative forum on uh, integration on on racism and interculturalism is there going to be that dialogue? Is there going to be dialogue with communities? Um, that's where the challenges become much trickier. Yes, and in direct p- provision, for example, yeah. people are only given thirty eight euros a week. They are, and of course, and, I mean, it was found not it, allowed to work. It was found in two thousand and seventeen that that was unconstitutional that they weren't allowed to work. But then they yes. they raised the bar so high uh, that you had to be offered a job uh, for thirty thousand uh, euro per annum, and you had to pay a fee uh, in order for this to be activated. So, I mean, it was made impossible uh, for many of them. Uh, And that's another issue around how we manage that, because, you know, we were uh, different from other European countries in not allowing uh, these these applicants to work. So, you know, it's not about showering praise um, on Irish political leaders. Yes, you can acknowledge that they certainly have not been irresponsible 
uh, when it comes to indulging um, in, in in the opportunities that might be there to you know to make political hay out of this. But at the same time, you know, there has clearly been a lack of attention given. Uh, to, to these issues of, of integration and to these much longer standing problems because direct provision has been a system that has been excoriated yes, uh, for, 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 for many years now. But it's not just colour-coded either, Eamon. I mean, you remember the 2018 general election when Peter yes. Casey as a candidate yes, uh, went from yeah. minuscule support to getting over 23% of the vote, yes. largely on the back of what he said about travellers. Yes, um, and they're another group who would maintain that they have uh, been subjected to a very systematic racism uh, yes. over the years. So you know, it's not necessarily just about those uh, recent migrants who have come to the country in in recent decades. Just let me ask you two in one question about two factors that are obviously discernible wherever racism has flourished: the political parties and the media in countries like Britain and elsewhere too, giving, if you like, the oxygen of publicity to some of these foul ideas and notions. That's important, I think, in Ireland. But what I think doesn't really matter. When you observe it, Dermot, what do you think about the importance of a media that is absent that kind of stuff? I think that's a very important point. Uh, And I think what you're saying is true that we have a more responsible media um, and we don't have that same history uh, of, of a tabloid culture, no. uh, of, of a frenzy. Now, there were criticisms made in the late 1990s about some of the language that was being used in reporting on the asylum question, on the, the, the wider immigration um, question, uh, the kind of headlines or the kind of language that was being used. But it wasn't on the scale uh, that you might get elsewhere and that certainly was inevident. Uh, no, but there, there were protests voiced, which in itself is something, you know, that is effective. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, you're talking as well about people uh, protesting about the way in which things were reported. Yes. Um, you know, there was a response from, from that group I mentioned, uh, the, the consultative group that had been set up. You know, they directly addressed the issue of media reporting and they were calling out what they yes. regard as irresponsible and inaccurate reporting as well, yes. um, particularly when there's a reference to the idea uh, of, of floods or, or, you know, Ireland being overwhelmed uh, by yes. this uh, and the degree of exaggeration that was going on. But you see, what media can also do, of course, and, and they do it regularly, is that they underline the plight of those who are making you know, life-changing and often yes. life-threatening journeys that are yes. not of their choosing. You know, sometimes they are of their choosing, Often they're not. Um, and they would also underline uh, the experiences that Irish people have with healthcare, for example. Yes. Uh, how many people who are being treated in Irish healthcare settings uh, have been looked after um, by those from the Philippines or India who yes, are working uh, in healthcare settings? Um, so, I mean, that's also uh, about reporting. In, in a much broader way, the complexion of Irish society now, the complications uh, uh, around um, who we are and, and what we have become, but also the individual journeys uh, that are involved uh, in these migration stories. And a lot of those migrants themselves, whilst they have been vocal about some of the racism that they have experienced, many of them, of course, have also highlighted the great welcome uh, yes. that they have experienced. 
Um, yes. And again, you know, there are many different reasons for that. There is a strong sense uh, of of empathy and making common cause. You can see that in the Ukrainian because of our history uh, yes. context as well. Yeah, I, I think part of it uh, is our history. But you could never be complacent about that. No, no. Because it's quite clear, and again, this is why we have such a complex uh, relationship with race. It, it, it's quite clear uh, that there is always the capacity uh, for things to turn nasty. I mentioned recently the work of the late Father Michal McGrail, uh, who was a, a very interesting Jesuit priest and sociologist who wrote a book that caused quite a stir in the 1970s called Prejudice and Tolerance in Ireland. Uh, and he detected on the back of his research, what he regarded as quite a dormant or latent yes. uh, racism. And of course, at that stage, there were only 11,000 uh, non-nationals living in Ireland. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't a societal issue, but he did make the interesting point. What will happen if we ever become a host society or if right. there are uh, migrants coming to Ireland? Um, and that's the question that he was raising. He went on to follow that book with subsequent books uh, you know, dealing with how things changed over the course of the, the 1980s, 1990s uh, and beyond. And again, uh, he found a lot of tolerance, but he was also able to identify uh, prejudice. So it, it's that duality, you know, it's the prejudice and the tolerance. But for us, by and large, the tolerance has won out. The right. frightening thing at the moment, I suppose, is that there are those who now detect in Ireland an opportunity uh, yes. to push the prejudice. And to send Tommy Robinson an invitation. Okay, Dermot, we're very, very grateful to you, indeed, for joining us today, Dermot. Ferreter is Professor of Modern Irish History in UCD, and he has a column uh, always interesting in the Irish Times every Friday. We're grateful to Dermot, to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs>